Thank you for clicking and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. Hi, I'm Jim Dudley. Jim, this weekend we mark the 15-year anniversary of 9-11, the attacks that took place in New York and Washington, D.C., the Pentagon, and of course that field in Shanksville, um, Pennsylvania. You know, there were 19 attackers that day. There were intended to be 20, but only 19 made it across. 3,000 people almost were killed in uh, an attack that involved three locations, as I'd mentioned, and four hijacked aircraft. Now, that was a hallmark of al-Qaeda's tactics back in the day. Um, they had had coordinated attacks on the embassies in Africa in 1998. They had had the attack on the USS Cole in the year 2000 in Yemen. And it was one of the things that you kind of always looked for uh, was that, that high profile, high casualty count, um, coordinated, multiple location type of attacks. And since then, we have seen, um, because of terrific enforcement by the FBI, a lot of people have been apprehended in the plot phase, um, and a variety of other new measures that we've taken since 9-11, we've seen, in the United States anyway, no um, significant multiple location, multiple target, highly coordinated, you know, up to 20 people involved in the plot. You know, we've had um, a transition, I think, from that type of thing to when we had the beginning of Inspire magazine, the magazine published by Al-Qaeda, and uh, later Dabiq, the magazine published by um, ISIS. You know, these folks are interested in actually, as the title might imply, uh, inspire people, individuals, lone actors to um, take up arms and to use tactics like the Boston Mar Marathon bombers got their recipe for those pressure cooker bombs in Inspire magazine. The name of the article was Building a Bomb in the Kitchen of Your Mom. And, you know, we've had these things kind of fester over time. We've been fortunate not to have a really large scale attack, but we've had a significant number of successful smaller attacks. You know, um, as we record this, uh, this podcast, it's been reported that the FBI is now investigating um, an attempted beheading in Virginia that happened in the middle of, of August. Um, you know, back in 2002, we had a shooting at LAX, two dead. In 2006, there was a shooting at the Jewish Community Center. We, have, of course, had the Little Rock Recruiting Center. We had the beheading in Oklahoma, speaking of beheadings. Um, you know, that attack was stopped by an off-duty uh, sheriff's deputy. who ran to the, you know, to the office in his, in his facility and uh, got his rifle or his pistol, I don't recall, and, and took care of that problem. Boston Marathon bombers left four dead, but countless scores injured and, uh, and, and uh, many with, with um, amputeed, uh, amputees. Um, Nadal Hassan, you know, attacked Fort Hood and left 13 dead and others wounded. Um, there was the military attack, in, uh, attack on military people in Chattanooga, five dead there. Then, of course, we had San Bernardino, a very significant attack, 14 dead. And Orlando, um, obviously, with 49 dead, the largest mass shooting by anyone, um, including a terrorist in the United States. Um, with the exception of Boston and San Bernardino, all of these people were lone actors. Um, they had very limited tradecraft. They all basically just purchased guns, or in the case of the beheading um, people, used knives in, in Boston, um, you know, used pressure cookers and um, simple um, explosive materials. Very limited tradecraft, but effective in causing people to alter their behaviors. You know, what do you think about how these this, this change in tactics um, has affected the way in which law enforcement is responding to or preventing um, terrorist attacks. 
Well, it's the 15th anniversary, 15th year anniversary of 9-11, and I think an awful lot's changed in, in uh, the way we do things in American law enforcement. I think the, the precursor attacks that you mentioned there, they got us on a high alert, but we really didn't realize the potential until uh, the Twin Towers came down, and it's one of those things where everyone can recall where they were when that happened. We've seen an evolution of police training more towards military-style tactics. Uh, they don't they don't really pass muster at a demonstration or protest as we've seen in Ferguson. But I think it's necessary to remain prepared to have the equipment and the training necessary to defend ourselves in the event of a uh, the the type of attacks that you've talked about. And I, I really see the the one or two gunmen or even the Mumbai style attacks happening here in the U.S. Um, you go to any big city and, um, you know, you've, we've got these sort of uh, social mores of not really looking at each other, uh, not smiling, not acknowledging. And to me, it would it would seem to be um, um likely for for groups to come into a situation like that large cities so we have had the training we've gone to new mexico tech and we've had bomb training um, for not just the eod the explosive ordnance um, operators but also every law enforcement officer at an agency would get at least awareness training so you know what an ied may look like you know the the things that would assemble into a bomb um, you know about uh, TLOs, terrorism liaison officers, and so these are all these are all really good prevention steps before the attack. So things to look out for uh, when you're taking a police report or investigating a situation with uh, a neighbor um, reports suspicious smells or activity coming from an apartment or or a house. Uh, in the the actual tactical training, we have had that as well. Uh, we, we talk all the time about active shooters, and we're usually talking about workplace violence type situations. But more and more, you see law enforcement officers uh, uh, ready to, uh, to on the fly change gears and, and move towards um, the, the point of attack, uh, regardless of, of what, how it's manifested. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we saw that in particular. Um, the active shooter response type of training become very effective in San Bernardino and in Orlando. In San Bernardino, I contend, and I'm not alone, that um, though that attack on the, um, the, the community center was a target of opportunity and the first of what they wanted to be a series of attacks. They had constructed, I believe, if I recall correctly, in the neighborhood of a dozen or a dozen and a half pipe bombs. They brought just one to that attack. The, the fact of that fact alone tells me that they were looking to use those pipe bombs someplace else. They got into a shootout with law enforcement um, in their vehicle uh, going from point A to point B. And I don't really know where they were going, but they were found um, uh, in their car, um, killed in their car in a, in a gunfight with police, leaving behind a vast amount of ammunition in their home as well as their bombs. Very effective by uh, uh, police response there. And of course, in Orlando, you know, we got into the Orlando situation. It was a standoff for quite a while. Um, you know, when when it became evident uh, that there was an exigent circumstance, that that guy was beginning to 
think about killing more people. SWAT worked its way in. They figured out a way to blow a couple of holes in the side of the building, extracted people from the side of the building. You know, these are all very, very good police tactics. And I think that goes to your point of the training that uh, cops have been receiving, um, you know, and, and, and also the mindset. You know, we're looking at the world through a different prism today than we were, um, you know, at 844 in the morning, East Coast time on 9-11. On you know, the world suddenly changed that day for everybody, not not the least of whom law enforcement. Sure. And, and I think the Orlando police and law enforcement law enforcement agencies in that area have taken some undue criticism for the delay and in the actual uh, suppression of the individual. But I thought it was a great example of how they shifted gears. They wanted to gather the intel. There, there was a break in the shooting, uh, a break in the carnage. They used that time to rescue people and to formulate plans and gather intelligence. I know that you, we still, we've seen on our own website, uh, people critical of Orlando, saying it's still a long time. But you have to realize that hours pass with virtually no shooting taking place. So I, th- I think, again, the response was appropriate. Yeah, and, you know, and their response was given the information that they had on the ground at the time. You know, they, you know we, we always talk about, you know, Graham v. Connor. Well, let's apply that same t- thinking here. You know, what those officers and uh, commanders knew at the time was that there was an ongoing negotiation via phone, um, yes, it was not constant, but it was con- there was contact um, ever so often with the gunman. There were no gunshots. Yes, the argument could be made that people may have bled out in that period of time. I, I totally understand that. But given the information that they had, they weren't going to send a whole bunch of SWAT cops into, you know, get mowed down by someone who's just, you know, in a better position and a better barricaded perch. It's just not a really good idea. Um, it wouldn't be effective in, in, in rescuing people. And of course, when they did execute their plan, none of the cops got injured and all of the innocents who were inside at the time of the rescue were rescued. So I think that that's important. I, I do too. And I think it's a good example of play like you practice and practice like you play. Uh, we, I went with a group to uh, Teeks, uh, the Texas uh, Training Center um, for Incident Command. And I recall in particular uh, a scenario that was degenerating very quickly to the point where there was a a building that was in collapse, that there were still people inside. And the question presented to the executive group was, do you send in another rescue team right now? Well, based on what was being told to us, we said, no, we don't. We're not sending more people in to be killed by this building collapse. And it was at a point where collapse was imminent, it was happening. And, you know, those are really tough decisions that that people in command on the scene have to make. And, you know, it may not be a popular decision, but I think in the grand scheme of thing, uh, grand scheme of things, I think like Orlando, you've got to make those kind of decisions. Yeah. And one of the things we also have to do is continually look abroad for examples of what may happen here. And, you know, I want to bring up, you know, you mentioned Mumbai, um, you know, swarm attacks, multiple location, multiple offender, uh, multiple attacker. Uh, type of attacks, you know, we saw in Paris, um, you know, the terrible multiple location attack, you know, this happened in Brussels, we've seen um, the, the attack in Nice not too too long ago. Um, my feeling is that the, uh, the folks in San Bernardino, they were looking to go someplace else, they were looking to make a multiple location attack, it was prevented by law enforcement. But it's such a low tech way in which you can put a city into utter chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at what happened particularly in Paris, and the place was paralyzed for, for literally for days. 
Um, you know, you had the 12 or so hours of the siege, and then for hours and hours and hours, perhaps days after, whole sections of the city were shut down. And, um, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of intellect or tradecraft or capability, um, particularly when you have, you know, and I mentioned everyone but the Boston and San Bernardino were all lone attackers, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the, t the two that were multiple attackers, one were brothers and the other were married. So they had these very easy ways to collaborate behind closed doors in a relationship type of a situation where if you have... Let's say, for example, three sons of a guy who's a, a radical. He can radicalize those three sons, and in four or five years, you know, the, 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 the kid who cooked off a bomb in Turkey and blew up the wedding was probably 13 or 14 years old. If you start radicalizing a kid when he's nine, uh, it's not going to be terribly difficult to get them to, to conduct an attack in multiple locations, and, you know, simultaneously. And so we're kind of, I'm seeing coming full circle back towards that similar tactic of we want to create the most chaos, the most havoc, in the most number of places and and you know paris is one example but and i'm i'm hopeful we never see one here but it's such a low-tech thing and it's very difficult for law enforcement to prevent and maybe even respond to yeah i i agree with you to a point but i think like in the boston we learn an awful lot from the boston marathon bombings and in special event management and in preparation for special events and and just really anything with um you know, multiple thousands of people is a special event. And so if you have the pre-planning, if you know something's going to happen, and we're not talking about a, a critical incident that occurs, but something, uh, World Series, uh, the Super Bowl, America's Cup Yacht Race, uh, what have you, that you coordinate with the multiple agencies within your area at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, and you bring them all in and you multiply your assets. You have a false force multiplier. And then you, you also have uh, additional budgets. You have overlays of intelligence gathering techniques, common operating platforms, eyes in the sky, uh, radiation uh, detectors, uh, EOD teams, canines, all these things that can really help on the prevention side. And then heaven forbid it gets by, then you manage it and you mitigate and you use those resources there. Yeah, you know, I think that you're absolutely right in that large scale events like those you mentioned, the Super Bowl, things of that nature, um, they're incredibly well protected now. I think that um, that would be a very, very difficult target to hit for any, even the most skilled trade craft um, will have a very difficult time even penetrating the perimeter of something like Super Bowl City that happened here in San Francisco. Um, that it would be very, very, very difficult to do. However, when you saw what happened in Paris, there was a soccer game going on kind of across the street from one of the main cafes where they torched off a couple of bombs. Mm -hmm. They didn't try to get to, into the, the, right. the, the stadium. Right. They cooked it off at the cafe. Right. And, you know, and then they moved on. And the, the, my, I think my, my point really is that we need to be prepared for this low tech, you know, we're not talking about trying to hijack four airplanes. We're not trying to talk about trying to get 3,000 injured or dead. We're talking about they're happy now again, as they have been in the Middle East for years. But in the United States, I think it was very difficult for, uh, for um, Al-Qaeda and, and uh, ISIS to convince people that they should die for the for killing four or five people, right? Sure. That they should die for that. They they wanted greater glory. They wanted greater numbers. Similar to active shooters, they want numbers. And that I think may have we may have reached an inflection point, 
where you know you look at Orlando, you look at San Bernardino, you look at some of the other shootings that I had mentioned, and the notion of a single person just being beheaded. That, just. Right? Well, just <laughs> we, that person was happy to be killed over killing just one person. Mm. Right? right? And I think that, you know, I've read ISIS magazine, um, Dabiq. I've read the um, uh, Inspire magazine for years. Dabiq's fairly new. Um, and that's what they have been preaching in those magazines for years. Be happy with the low tech. They had convinced people, they were trying to convince people to light fires in multiple locations, to use automobiles as weapons on the freeway and on the street, um, to go as low tech as possible. And you don't even need to be, you know, um, uh, uh, you know uh, announce your allegiance to either of these groups. They just want you to go out and do it and scream Alua Akbar in the process. Sure. So that's one of the things I think we need to be cognizant of as 15 years later, you know, we have to be looking forward as to what potentially could be coming down the pike. And I look to places like Mumbai, Paris, Brussels, and what have you, is those are the pl- those are the types of plots that they are seeing as being successful. And people on the internet, or people looking at Dabiq's magazine, or, or, uh, or you know, um, uh, ISIS's magazine, they're being you're beginning, I think, to see the. the, the I don't want to say upside or positive. They're they're seeing the potential for success for mm-hmm. their their definition of success in these kind of smaller low tech type of things. Sure, and you bring up some really good points when you talk about uh, the access being denied for these large events inside the stadium at a Super Bowl or a World Series. I think they're very satisfied to hit the periphery. Uh, we saw in Nice just mm-hmm. driving down this promenade with a truck, just you know mowing people down. And that's certainly a possibility at the outskirts of these kinds of events. So you're right. We've seen it in the Middle East for a long time. Uh, happy to take out a couple of people. That's right. But uh, hearkening back to uh, when I was in Paris uh, last month and the Euro Cup was going on. And I want to reiterate to law enforcement people out there at these events that the the critical juncture are these choke points, the security checkpoints where uh, you might have a, a false sense of security because you have all these things at your disposal, you're screening people, but that's also the, the point where uh, people can get into the warm zone, up to the warm zone with a device or a firearm, and that's where they're more likely to it, use it. It, that, it. For those venues, that is the most sensitive potential area for sure. Um, you know, as we begin to think about moving forward, and I want to think also about some of the successes we've had. We have had some attacks in the United States in the last 15 years, but um, credit to uh, due to, to uh, where credit is due, um, the FBI has been very good at nabbing some of these people in their planning stage, and they've gotten some really good sting operations. And, you know, I, I, I believe they've said something in the neighborhood of 300 uh, ongoing active investigations into people who are of, of interest to us at present today. Um, you know, I think that number probably should be increased, but, you know, that's the, the resources that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to local law enforcement who have been much more active in going to the JTTFs, um, using the information sharing that you can have with the terrorism liaison officer. Um, I think that, too, can be increased. Um, additional resources might be appropriate there, um, you know, because we really want to try and focus on the prevention more than the response, obviously, because we don't want something bad to cook off. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of end with this. The pre-attack indicators of, of terrorist activity I've written about before. You can Google pre-attack indicators and Doug Wiley, and it'll come up first thing in the, research, in the search results. I'll mention them here briefly. Number one, financing. 
Some of these enterprises finance through criminal activity. They, they, they rob, they steal, um, they, they use criminal enterprises such as oh, even uh, money laundering. Sure. And they, the next one is surveillance. You look for people who are in a place more than once for no reason. Um, three times is a charm. You know, you're there for th the third time. There's probably a reason for it. Active elicitation, the activity of calling up places and probing via phone. You know, do you have security at that school? Or tell me, the, um, what, what time are your hours? And, what, you know, when do you open? What time, how, how long are you there before you open? Um, probing security, that is to say, actually trying to make penetration into various locations. Um, acquiring supplies, that's an easy one. Uh, now, sometimes it's not so easy if some of those supplies over time are acquired that are, you know, let's say fertilizer and you happen to be a farmer, you know, well, guess what? That's a per looks like a legitimate uh, purchase, right? Um, and then conducting dry runs. Obviously, this is the most visible stage. Um, the 9-11 attackers con uh, conducted several dry runs, were never spotted. No one ever knew what the heck was going on. But if you look for it, um, it's, you know, it, it's kind of the, the, the notion of left of bang, you know, looking for anomalies and, and, and comparing them with the baseline. And then finally, obviously, deploying assets. That's, you know, in San Bernardino, they deployed assets and, you know, officers had to, re you know, respond. And, and various attacks, you have to get there after the, after the fact. And that's just an unfortunate reality we're looking at. Sure. And I, I mean, since, since those attacks, we've had the development of... Uh, the use of drones, the high visibility, high definition drones, uh, and we have laws against them. But like gun laws, who who do they protect us from, right? Uh, I think biometrics and other technology are are really key to this terrorism fight, and I, I really hope we're employing them here in the United States. I know they are at airports in Europe, and and if we are, if we are using them, then they're, we're really good because I haven't seen it done, and if we're not, I can't wait for it to happen. Yeah. Well, we can rely on, on t various technologies, um, but really, and I've said this for years, um, American law enforcement are the front lines for American counterterrorism in the United States. They are, you folks listening to this podcast are the number one protectors of uh, our citizens against terrorist attacks by people who have either self-radicalized on the internet or are uh, trying to uh, uh, attempt entry into this country from the sandbox overseas. And, uh, you know, you, everyone out there needs to be commended for the fine work in investigations and response that you guys have been doing. <laughs>